Let's turn to John's Gospel in chapter 3 and verse 1. John 3, verse 1. Let's uh, read verses 1 uh, to 21. John 3, 1 to 21. <clears throat> there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God." May the Lord give us understanding on his word this morning. John chapter 3. Verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then repeat it another way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, there are experienced Christians in the congregation, ministers and elders, experienced men and women 
and we read these words and we know these words. In fact, many of these words, in what, from one perspective, I may not have to have read to you because they're so well known. But let's not look at them and think it will be a simple gospel sermon this morning that I know. Uh, there's a reason we know these words. Uh, they are profound and they are deep. And I, I don't want to give a, a narrative overview on who Nicodemus was and why he came to Christ this morning. That would be a different kind of sermon about what would occur in Nicodemus's own heart by the Spirit of God. But I want to fake, focus on the issue of faith, what saving faith is, what is in it, and how you know that it's real and that it has what it needs, so that any who are here who have not yet um, experienced that faith might know clearly what it is, that those who maybe have thought they have had it, which is possible, might be more clear on what it is, that the children would know exactly what it is and those who are assured right now that you do possess it that you would go to the core things in your own soul and revisit them and see that that faith is there and understand it more and especially the Christ who that faith is in these are always profitable things for us so we will look at that this morning now we see in the opening of the passage um a focus on the mysterious activity of the Holy Spirit in saving and regenerating the soul, which is Christ's first point uh, to Nicodemus. You see that in these verses. For example, in, in verse 4, um, Nicodemus questions Christ in response when he says, you must be born again. How can a man be born when he's old? And so on. Verse 5 Verily, verily, I say unto thee, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's the issue of regeneration, that God initiates conversion. Christ says that clearly in this passage, that it's a, a sovereign, mysterious, and powerful work. And that's so important to remember, even for the categories of people here that I described there, that are children to be saved, there must be a sovereign, mysterious, powerful miracle that takes place. Uh, that for any who are not saved, that is the case. For those who are saved, uh, to marvel and be affected by the continuous uh, thought and examination of the fact that that's taken place. It's easy to think especially in the Reformed Church, though we list our, our stages of salvation, our order salutis, very well and can write them out. Very easy to think, as Reformed people, um, there's this great panorama of information that I didn't know, and I was ignorant before, and then I was shown it, and I accepted it in my mind, and that's what makes me a Christian now. That's what makes me Reformed. But the truth is, it was a miraculous work in the soul by the divine fiat of the Holy Spirit that you were born again. You had about as much involvement in that birth as you did in your natural birth. You were born again by the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament teaches us through Paul and Peter that that happens by the Word. The Word does come from the page of Scripture. The Word does come from the pulpit. The Word does come from mission and evangelism. And one or many of those words entered you. You heard them and saw them. And that divine, living, dynamic Word, as Peter says, is like a seed. And it's incorruptible. And it came into your soul through your mind. And through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that seed was accepted in its planting and it sprouted forth in life through the protection and cultivation of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit never just works alone. And the Word does nothing alone in salvation. They always work together as our confession teaches. Word and spirit. 
So share the word with each other and share it with your children and put those seeds down. But always be aware, always be cognizant that you in planting that word must prayerfully look to a divine act that is absolutely sovereign. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's one of the glories of his salvation that it's his and that he chooses whom he saves. Now, it's wonderful to hear Jesus in this intimate context with Nicodemus unfold some pieces of this in the initial part of the passage. And we see that Nicodemus doesn't understand it. Interestingly, Jesus says that he should as a teacher of Israel because it can be discerned from the Old Testament and the prophets. You are a master, a teacher in Israel, and you know not these things. If I tell you that, and it doesn't make sense to you, if you cannot receive that, how will you receive other things that I might say that are higher, more complex, and more glorious? But that's where he begins. That, then, is from God's side. That happens in your soul from God's side. He actions that, but in salvation, in saving faith, there is a part that is your side. He does that secretly, and he comes as sovereign to act, but he uses things in the midst of it, even things that are on your side. And that's the, the great formula of the gospel that you all know, that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. So the saving, the regeneration is on God's side. But the believing, as much as God helps you believe, the believing is something that you do. The believing is on your side. As much as he draws it from you, as much as he energizes spiritually in you to enable you in your will to believe in him, believing is something that we do. And that, that gospel formula of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's, it's rooted in Jesus' own words. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. That believing is something you do. What is it you are to believe? Here Jesus says, Whosoever believeth in him what is it that the, the Gospels tell us that we have to believe? It's a message. What is called the Gospel. That's what we must believe. You may say, well, I know the word Gospel. I know what it is. But it is a glorious thing that we must believe so that we would not uh, perish. That Gospel is a divine announcement of salvation in which God shows himself to the world, reveals who his son is, reveals the way to be saved, and calls on all men to repent. What is it that we have to believe? Jesus said at the opening of his ministry. John the Baptist said it too. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the evangelion. Believe the message. Believe the gospel. That is the route to salvation. Jesus says it here. Believeth. Paul said it in the chapter that we, that we read in Romans 10. That we confess with the heart, uh, with the mouth, but the heart believeth unto salvation. Believing is very important. And we believe the gospel. You know that the gospel, you've probably heard it said, a hundred times to you from a pulpit, the gospel means good news. I, I, uh, I don't like that expression that much. It's used so much, and I feel it the way it's repeated all the time, it falls far short of the immensity of what's being conveyed. People say, well, the gospel's good news. Uh, we, some people were concerned this morning about the weather on the way to church and its effects on the road and so on. And someone might say to you, there is good news. The road didn't freeze this morning. That's, that's in our parlance, that's what good news is. I have some good news. 
and someone comes to you and says, there's good news. Jesus has something to say to you. To me, I find that difficult. I remember when I was in seminary a, a long time ago now that I had to read Charles Bridges' book on the Christian ministry, and he was defining gospel, and I think he puts it the best way. That evangelion, gospel means excellent message or immense message. Seeing when, when Jesus speaks this way and when Paul spoke this way, gospel back then was the announcement from a king. It was an edict. It was a scroll that went out from a messenger and they arrived in a town to announce some great change or law or accomplishment of the Caesar or the king. It wasn't, there's good news, it rained on my crops today. It was something extremely personal to do with your patriotism, some great battle that Rome had won, or the or the king had been delivered from some great calamity, or a great celebration or feast. It would be comparable today from people in the United States hearing that the war had ended in Europe, VE Day, or something like that. Some great announcement from the government that the war has ended. And you wouldn't say, well, that's good news. You would, you would fall down weeping and say, this is, this is extremely life-changing seismic news and it comes from the authority of a very high king and it's proclaimed in the town square where he says the war is over or the empire has has won the battle and Rome is safe or the king's son is being married call a feast these are grand announcements so when when Christ and John the Baptist say, the kingdom of heaven is coming, it's arriving in your town. Repent and believe the excellent announcement, the message. That meant you had to do something right away. Caesar's coming. We have to make ready for the king. And if there's some problem between me and Caesar, and he's about to arrive in our town, I must put that right. I have something to do immediately. I must repent and accept and honor this message. So let's still call it good news. It will always be called good news. But I think you know what I'm saying, that sometimes when someone says, I have the good news for you, it doesn't quite convey how dramatic and powerful and immense this so-called news, this announcement actually is. And we're told to believe it. We're told to believe this divine announcement of salvation. That announcement comes to us uh, this morning in this church. It's come into your life at various points. It's an announcement from an apostle at this time in the Bible, from a preacher or from a relative to you. And that announcement comes. That gospel is told. And when it comes, it's very serious because you're being invited into his kingdom. You're being invited to do something. You're being invited to be reconciled to him. And at the same time, you're being commanded to do it. The king is saying, subject, citizen, this is what you must do. And if you do not, you will perish. You will be destroyed. You will be cast out of the realm of my kingdom and be in the place of rejection, condemnation, and rebellion where my enemies are. In the outer darkness, hell itself. That's the consequence of ignoring, or playing light with, or putting this announcement in your filing cabinet and saying, I will deal with it later. It's urgent. Whoever believes, Jesus says in verse 16, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So that's saving faith. Now, what saving faith by believing uh, that gospel? Now, you want to believe the gospel. Um, what are the components 
of that saving faith. Traditionally in Reformed theology, it has a couple of components. Because I'm sure you know, you can't just accept the facts that certain things took place. And that's it. I believe that there was a man called Jesus. He was the Son of God. Judas betrayed him. And he died a very painful death. And yes, I think I can accept that somehow this person rose from the dead. I accept it. That's not saving faith. That's acknowledging that historical events took place. What are the components of saving faith? If Jesus says to me that if I don't believe, I will be lost eternally, I had better know exactly what that belief is and how it works and what it contains. What is that saving faith? What components are there? Well, they divided them into three categories. There was what they called the notion or notia, which is the facts I just described. You need to know stuff to believe it. You need to hear about it or read it in the Bible, and then you can arrange it in your mind and say, right, that happened. I understand what took place. The notion. Some people today think that is saving. And this is the reason the reformers categorized them, because that's not saving. That's not saving. Then there was assent, or a census, assent, which was that you confess that to be true. You take some ownership of it. You, uh, you are convicted by its relevance. So you know it happened, but then you take ownership of it yourself. The, the gospel says you must come to Christ. And you don't just say, well, the gospel said that. You become convicted of that fact that you must come to Christ or that Christ died on the cross and what that meant or that you're a sinner. You become convicted and you, you confess uh, that. You assent to it. And the last part is fiducia, which is just the old Latin word for faith, fidelity. And that means to believe and trust the message. And in this case, when Jesus said, he that believeth in me, that's him. So when you put these three together, the notion, the assent, and the fidelity, it means that you come to know things, you become convicted that they're true, and you own them for yourself. You say, I believe these things. And then you trust in the message. You trust in the person of the message. And when you put all of that together, that's saving faith. So what are these things that I must know that I must then understand and be convicted of and assent to, and that I must then trust in lovingly. What are these things we know, that we are to know? Well, they're always the same in the New Testament, and they come out foundationally out of Jesus' own mouth here. There are things that you must know, understand, and confess and assent to, and then lovingly trust in and commit to. There are things you must know. The first is God himself. He says that God so loved the world. He says in the same verse that there's a link to that God through faith in him um, that you might not perish. So, And that's important in the context of Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't think there's a problem between him and God because of his his Jewish observances and so on, and his knowledge. But the point is, and Nicodemus would say, I believe in God. The point is <clears throat> that when this has gone out to the Gentiles and it reaches the, the, the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex area, there are people all around, and they think all kinds of things. But to have saving faith, we must know that there is a God. And it's not just to know that there is one. We have to know who that God is. It can't be versions of it that someone has constructed in their imagination and that we accept. We must know that there's a God and that there's a serious problem between you and God by nature. The New Testament teaches us, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews chapter 11. We must know God. So in all our 
confessional formula, even in our membership classes and vows and so on, that's always right at the top after Scripture, because you can't know any of this without Scripture. But, well, who is God? Do you believe in the Trinity and so on? Who is God? His Father, who he's referring to here, uh, Jesus. Who is he? Infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, righteous, glorious, holy, personal, triune. See the way that Hebrew said it there. He who comes to God must believe that he is. That can't just mean I believe there's something there. It's that he is. And he is as he is. We must believe in him as he truly is. Otherwise, we believe in another God or another gospel. The one true living God. The, as Paul says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It must be him. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Tells us about God. Jesus shows us and reveals uh, to us, uh, God, that there is God the Father, that he has a Son. You cannot have faith in the Son of God and say, Jesus has saved me, unless you know who the Father is. And that though we are reconciled to the Trinity, obviously Father, Son, and Spirit, there is some primacy given to the Father. Peter says that Jesus died for our sins, that he might bring us to God. Often when Paul mentions Christ, he gives him the name Jesus Christ. And then he says, and God, the Father. He gives some prominence there. Some, he just focuses on him. And the point is that we must be reconciled to God, triune. And we especially must know that there is God, the Father. For he's the one who is initiating salvation here and gives his son that it might be achieved and that you and I would not go to hell. That tells me immediately something about God. It tells me something about the Father that, and that he gives his son. We must know these things. And people, uh, we have here a father, a son, persons. I've already pointed out that, I mean, Jesus himself mentions the Holy Spirit. Once you were born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it lifteth. You hear the sound thereof, and so on. The Spirit is operational. Jesus' baptism is just mentioned uh, in, the prior, in the prior chapters. And there you know the Trinity was revealed. The Son hears the Father, and the Spirit alights upon him in the form of a dove. That God is active in salvation. Now, we must come to know God, if God so loved the world that he gave his son, to, be, to savingly believe, we must know who God is, that there are three persons in the Godhead. Three persons, one God. Three persons subsisting in the one divine nature, one being. Not separate in any way, but three persons subsisting in that essence, that substance, a tri-personal existence. So he's not like us, you're a unipersonal existence. You are you, and you can be with other people and so on. God isn't like that. He existed from all eternity like that. Three persons, one God. So we must know some of this and confess it and understand it and embrace it and love him as he is. Famous words of Jesus in this very gospel that even our children know. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. So there's no way in if no one teaches you about the Father and no one teaches you that Christ is the mediator and the way in. There is no way in. And people can say many things. Well, um, I, I believe in the Jewish God, or I believe in Vishnu or Allah. I shared a church building in my prior congregation with a so-called minister who believed 
that Muslims and us worship the same God. The very same God. It's not the same God. It may seem the same in certain ways. Infinite, creator, powerful. That doesn't mean that that people are actually coming to know the true and living God. It just means that it's obvious that there is a God, that he is sovereign, that he is infinite, and man will figure out ways of expressing that. That doesn't mean they've come to know him. Why? Because Jesus tells us, and any Christian minister uh, should resign right away if he can't agree with Jesus, that no man cometh unto the Father except by me. We must have faith that there is one true living and triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and that Jesus died that he might bring us weak, ignorant fools who would have all been pagans were it not for this work, that he brought us unto the God who stretched the cosmos out and sent his Son into that cosmos that we are brought unto him. How what a marvelous thing if you have the assurance and you know the marks and so on, that you are in Christ this morning, um, that you, in the condition you were in, were brought unto God and adopted by him and known and loved by him. So people will say, and this will be useful when you're out um, evangelizing and so on, and um, you know that you get responses by this. I'm okay. I, I believe in God. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I accepted Jesus into my heart and so on. Well, well, which God, what's he like? Which of his attributes have you deleted? Which of the persons of the Trinity have you deleted? Which descriptions of God's work have you taken uh, from the Bible and just put them in the, in the waste bin and replaced and say, no, I think God works this way. And that these are the attributes that matter. And he wouldn't do X, Y, or Z to me. I'm safe. No. We must believe in God as he is. Um, someone may say, I believe in the God of the Bible. I am brought to this Reformed church. And my parents have taught me about God. And I accept what the Bible says. Adults may say this. We must remember what God says about that, that there are pitfalls to just that, that um, notion of faith. The first thing I mentioned, the notia. The, I, I, I hear the facts and I'm pretty sure I accept them. Uh, that the Jews believed that. The Jews knew who God was. And James says, you say, I believe in God. There is one God. You say that. You do well, he says. Even the demons believe. How careful we must be then. So let's draw from scripture in our lives to make sure we know who God is. But it cannot be that I just accept that he's there and that he's powerful in overall things and he has a wonderful plan for my life and I'm okay with him. Well, the demons know what you know about God, but they are not reconciled to him. They do not love him. They do not serve him. What did Jesus say throughout the rest of this gospel regarding that belief in God? It it's interesting once you actually draw out how many times Jesus said it, how important it is. The Jews said to Jesus in chapter 8, verse 19, We have one Father, God. That's what they said to Jesus. And Jesus said, You neither know me nor my Father. We have one Father, God. He's our Father. Jesus says, You don't know my Father. You think you may know him, but you don't know him. If you had known me, you would know my father also. The same chapter, verse 54, Jesus said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father 
who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. So they were saying, we have one father. He is our God. Nicodemus was initially in this camp, wasn't he? At the start of this chapter, Nicodemus would have said to you, we have one father and he is my God. And Jesus would say to him, based on chapter 8, no, you're saying he is your God. But you actually don't know him. You're not in relationship with him in that way. You have not known him, Jesus said to them. But I have known him. Isn't that remarkable? They knew a lot about God. They knew a lot. These people had memorized the books of Moses and so on. They could pass all your exams to you. And they said, he's our God. And Jesus says, yet you have not known him. Now, friends, just as I leave this initial point on God, um, I, I ask you, not because I've made a judgment or I, I'm assessing anything at all, but it isn't the Reformed Church in some ways that has some counterpart existence to these people's situation. The, the Pharisees, for example, were Reformers. They were hyper-doctrinal. They hated idolatry. They hated all the all of the compromises of the past, and they wanted to get it right. You, you go into a Pharisee's house, he's washing his couch, he's ceremonially purifying your hands just to make sure that we don't want to sin. Not in that way. You know that, that their hearts were dens of sins in other ways towards their parents and money and luxury and so on. But isn't it shocking that there is some counterpart there? They were reformers. They were Puritan. And I'm the b- biggest exponent of uh, Puritans. Um, rightly understood, but you see the danger here. And, and Jesus came across this in his ministry. You go into Reformed churches, and everyone's like, we all know God. Let's, let's debate supralapsarianism. Let's talk about the covenants. You know, what do you think about what happened in Scotland in the, in the 1600s? And that's the kind of stuff they would discuss. Now, <laughs> Jesus says, you don't know God. The, the, what a danger to be to be in a, a really mixed up church where there isn't structure, there aren't clear statements, there isn't knowledge, it doesn't stimulate the mind. And then you come into the Reformed Church, you're like, wow, look at all these things I need to learn. Look at these theolo- I'm reading John Owen and I'm learning so much. And we can read it. We can read it. And we say, I have one Father. And he is my God. And there's only one Christ. We say, is he king only of the church? Or is he king of the church and nations? And what does his mediatorial kingship apply to? And there's a feeding frenzy and a big argument. And a bunch of the people who are arguing about it might not even know who Jesus is. But I know about him. I've read. I know the positions on his nature and his, how he carries out his kingship. And I can argue it. Yeah, they could too. They could too. It's a whole different story when you're in your prayer room alone, whether you love him and know him and have ever ever experienced his tenderness and his mercy and his love to you. Now, we know these things are essential. Study them, friends, but this is the... How can I not say this? Jesus is sitting with a theology professor of the Jewish school that taught the whole nation, and he says to him, you don't know God. Now... We must be aware of that. Let's make sure that that we don't have this kind of formalized, technical, high theological, debative only faith. But let's make sure that we have been reconciled to him, that we have experienced his love and we've come to love him. And that we love Christ first and foremost. Not that we find what he did very interesting and worthy of a good argument, but that we love him for it. A good test of that is if a Baptist or someone from one of the other areas of the church comes to you and they say, let's talk about the love of Christ and what he's done for us. And he saved me and I remember when I repented. And you say, no, I I want to debate worship. And you say that immediately. That's not a good sign. Start with the love of Christ get to the other stuff. Start with the love of God in Christ. So we must believe in God. We must also believe 
in sin. God so loved the world uh, that he gave his son that whoever believeth shall not perish. Uh, verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. Why, why, why is there condemnation at all in the gospel? Why is there condemnation on the lost sinner or on Jesus himself on the cross where he is condemned for sin? Why is there condemnation at all? Because sin is that spiritual reality that necessitates the gospel in the first place. We must, in our notion, in our assent, and in our loving trust in Christ, have reckoned with sin in this collection of things that comprise saving faith. We must have a realistic and biblical view of sin. Many gospels out there they don't have sin in their formula at all, or it's there, but it's seriously de-emphasized and everything else is blown up and you can hardly, you can hardly see it. And that, that becomes then a big problem. And I think that our people that are still lost because they're hearing a gospel all the time where no one's telling them the truth about what a big problem sin is and how it's addressed and how it's still present in your life and you have to mortify it. These are blessed things if we've been taught these things. Sin. In verse 19, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And shocking. God so loved the world, and the love of Christ constrains us in the gospel. But there's another love in the mix, and that's that by nature we love sin. We're not caught out by it, we're not just ignorant, we love it by nature. The lost person loves sin because it suits them. It might look really disgusting to you or it might have a perfect lawn and three perfect cars in the driveway. It might not look obvious, but sin is loved because ultimately self is loved. That's where it's all rooted in. Verse 20, everyone practicing evil hates the light. So Jesus is showing Nicodemus that sin must be addressed. Nicodemus thought sin was being addressed in other ways. That he was born a Jew, he was circumcised, he followed the ordinances, he, tr he tried to love God and love his neighbor. As the scribe said to Jesus, that, that part of the law, it's worth more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So Nicodemus would have believed these things. If you'd said to Nicodemus, what is the greatest commandment? He may have answered like a lot of rabbis would have answered at that time with the exact word of Jesus. Well, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nicodemus didn't go into this meeting with Jesus because he was concerned about sin at all. His own sin. It was the Gentiles that were lost. It certainly wasn't people who were going to the temple and who were in synagogue three times a week. Those weren't sinners. He thought his sin had been uh, dealt with. Well, but we must reckon with sin. Now, to emphasize sin, Jesus, in verse 14 and 15, um, brings out a, a, an event from the Old Testament where Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, and you know the event. And there's many things Jesus could have used in this conversation. Um, to show that, that we, need re, we need redeemed, or that sin needs a sacrifice and so on. He could have said, as the lambs were brought to the temple, so the Son of Man must be offered up. Or, as Abraham offered up his son, so the Son of Man must be offered up. There's lots of things Jesus could have said to him. And he probably said more that isn't recorded. But this is, I think, an emphasis thing from Jesus. It's a very intense image that's a bit complex in the Old Testament, that, that Jesus is revealing here that the serpent, the bronze serpent lifted up in, in the desert when they had been in unbelief and grumbling against God, when they were all bitten by snakes, that that's a picture of him. And it's a very intense picture. And I think he, he uses it to really emphasize sin because um, that thing says curse. That's what it says. It also says healing, but curse. Bronze is the Old Testament metal for judgment and condemnation. 
And that would be an interesting Bible study for you to do or in family worship. Whenever you come across bronze or brass, um, ch- ch- check the, uh, the, the context and see if it's judgment that's been spoken of. The heavens are as bronze shining down upon us. And we want to pray and we look up and all we see is ourselves. If, if the sky is made of bronze and you look up, you're seeing the color of God's judgment and all you can see is yourself. Nothing gets through. It's just bouncing back right at you. You just see your own reflection. On the way into the temple, the bronze laver spoke of judgment and so on, that the priests had to come in, and because God is so holy and so righteous, you need to wash your garments, you need to wash yourself in this huge laver, and you see in the bronze the clean water and that you're unclean. And when you look in the laver... That bronze is so reflective, you, you could see yourself in it. And I think that is part of the construction of that labor, that the priests, you see yourself. Um, and you must wash before you go into God's presence. Bronze is very important. Well, this was a bronze serpent, and it spoke of judgment. They had been redeemed from Egypt. A lot of them were unconverted. They were grumbling. They were complaining about God's character. They didn't know him as he truly was. They didn't trust in his mercy and grace. He hath brought us out to kill us and our children. And God responds with anger to this. And they have to look at the serpent that spoke of that curse of sin, that spoke to them about their sin. The serpent who is the originator of our sin, who is the originator of that curse, who was the one with whose fangs that poison first went into us and made us sick, as all the children of Israel were being bitten. That's what happens when we give ourselves over to sin, when we're not cleansed and we don't have justifying faith and we're following formally and we complain against God and we sin against him, then all of a sudden the camp is full of the curse. And that venom, naturally, from those snakes is a picture of sin. The serpent came into the garden and went like that into Eve. And then Adam. And then it was prophesied that he would do the same to Christ, just his foot. And that as he did it, Christ would crush his head. He is the author of these lies and so on, and these wrong views of God. We must reckon with sin in that way, friend. It, sin isn't, it isn't little things you don't do. It isn't that you had flagrant sins in your unconverted life, but sin isn't much of a problem now. Sin doesn't change. It's deadly. It's poisonous. It kills. It destroys relationships. It destroys your character if you give yourself over to it. It, it destroys everything eventually. It's really serious. If you have a virus, and um, or you just say you were bitten by an actual snake or a spider, and um, you put a note out, please pray for me. We would say you're getting treatment, and you go and get the treatment. It's very urgent, and you're given things to deal with that venom. Well, why be urgent about that, but not urgent about sin? Sin is a problem because it contaminates and does those things to our soul that I just described, and it makes us guilty for doing them. Big problem before God. God sees the guilt of sin and its contamination and uncleanness. And it's not just a picture of a gentle lamb being offered up that somehow that transaction frees me. The image from the book of Numbers here, and Jesus chooses it, is very vivid. That how can Christ picture himself as a serpent on a pole on the cross? The answer is from Paul. He was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is an intense image of sin there. It's not mediocre. It's not tame. It's Jesus looks evil, considered covenantally. He is identified with the serpent and the curse that God the Father looks on him and there is a serpent on the pole And I think from one perspective, it's culpable and so on for the sin, but somehow it heals. Somehow it heals. There were all these things in the ancient world where they thought different things that snakes did and so on could heal people 
and that kind of thing. But you look at the cross and you're seeing curse. Don't look at the cross and not see its brutality. Don't look at the cross and not see the depth of the wrath that's going on in the three hours of darkness. Don't look at the cross and say, he died a painful martyr's death for me. That's not what saved you. It was only part of it. What he is being cursed, friends, for your sin, for the sin of his elect. Your sin. Yeah, all the ones you remember from your unconverted days. But they all accumulate up, even in your Christian life now. Every little one of them. Every one of them. It's a mountain of sin. In each one of us, we just make piles and piles of the thing. Sin, sin, sin. Love your neighbor, sin. Remember the Sabbath day, sin. Be charitable, sin. Be forgiving, sin. Speak the truth, sin. Don't worship man or of the fear of man, sin. Don't be judgmental, critical, uh, divisive, um, and cause huge problems in your relationship, sin. There's just sins everywhere. And when they're placed on Christ, their guilt is placed on Christ at the cross. He is the serpent on the pole. There's wonderful connections too in that, that he is the serpent on the pole when we know what Genesis 3 said. There he is being cursed, supposedly in a place of weakness under the mighty wrath of God and he looks like a serpent. He's cursed. But while he looks this way, he sticks out his foot and destroys the devil. That serpent. So this is a very vivid image. And he's telling Nicodemus, you think the Jews are clean, you think the temple's clean, you think your synagogue is clean, you think you're fine because you are a Jew and a ruler of the Jews. Well, Nicodemus, the Jews were in the wilderness and they were supposedly the people of God and they didn't believe God. And what did God do? Did he say, that's okay? No. He sent serpents into the camp. And the only way to be healed is to look by faith at the serpent on the pole. So we can look back at the Jews and say, wasn't it terrible what they did in the wilderness? Right. Well, the the Reformed Church or our beloved denomination or a collection of churches that are in the wilderness making their way to the promised land. Is everything okay? Is everyone believing? Is everyone being obedient? Is everyone manifesting the fruits of the Spirit and loving one another? Is everyone being wise? Is everyone being faithful to Scripture? Is everyone conforming their life and their congregation to what Scripture actually says? No, we'll, we'll, do a lot of, we'll allow a lot of other things to. Because no church is perfect. And they say, well, God's okay with that. And God says, no, no, it's not okay to not believe my word and honor my word. I will send serpents among you and they will bite and you, you will have heat stroke and you will have the effects of venom and you will fall down there and many will fall in the wilderness. And the only way to deal with it once we've sinned in this way against the Lord as congregations or individuals is to look at the serpent on the pole. Sin is a very dynamic thing. And we can, we can make a big mistake by saying that the gospel broke its power on me and its dominion. Therefore, I can kind of play around in it and let these things into the camp. No, we drive sin out of the camp. But to be saved, you have to consider sin in this kind of way. You can't look at the cross and say, great martyr's death. You must look at the cross and say, sin is being crushed. Sin is being paid for. Sin is being atoned and cleansed. What is the cross? If someone asked you that, one of your answers should be, it is a sin offering. It is an altar with a sacrifice on it to deal with my sin. That's what it fundamentally was. The cross is where sin is punished and lifted off of us. Let no one speak or preach about the cross and leave sin out of it. If they do so, they don't understand the cross. Gospel, sin, uh, God, sorry, sin. 
we also must believe in Christ. Jesus says, whoever believes in him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. It still staggers me what the Bible says, that the world can be saved through one person, that it says here that the world through him might be saved. We must understand the notion of Christ and we must confess and assent and be convicted about who he is and what he's done and we must lovingly trust in that work. What about Christ? Uh, That he's the son of God, that he died a substitutionary death, that he rose again. That's the gospel, that he's the son of God, that um, how many times does he say this to Nicodemus? Must have been shocking for Nicodemus to hear. Um, as a Jewish theologian, his only begotten son, Jesus says to him in verse 16. And again in verse 18, they have not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. He's saying God has a son, Nicodemus. He isn't just the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord thy God. Proverbs says, who is God's son? Tell me his name if you know it. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? God has a son. In Genesis 3, he's called a seed. He's pictured as Abraham offers Isaac because the son is offered. Jesus comes out here and makes it clear and emphatic to him. Nicodemus, do you not know God has a son? Do you not know God has a son? I am that son. And we must understand that, believe in it, and trust in that. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. God gave his son. John 5. I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. We don't love God if we don't love the Son. But he was created and he's Lucifer's brother and will give us our own planet to reign on. That's not receiving him. That is not loving God. He was a great prophet that that was placed on the cross. But he didn't die and rise again. He's a great prophet. No. He is God's only begotten son. And to deny him is not to love God. But I feel so strongly I love God. I feel spiritual. I thank him for my food. I can see that God made all things. And that he fills all things. And he's in all of us. I feel it so strongly. No. He who denies me, denies him who sent me. He who does not believe in him is condemned already, for he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the way in. So you're coming to the narrow gate, and it has a notion. It has an assent. It has a loving trust and belief. And you say, how do I enter this narrow gate? One of the things it says is that you must believe in the only begotten Son of God. That's the way in. That's saving faith. And as I described to you about the bronze serpent, that he died for us and rose again. Jesus includes that all here. God gave his only begotten Son. Paul says he did not spare him, but he delivered him up for us all. God didn't spare him, but he delivered him up to that, to pay for our sin. Jesus means that here. He gave his son. He doesn't just mean he sent him. He gave him. He gave his son. That whoever believes in what occurred there should not perish. He gave his son as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You must believe 
in the substitutionary sacrifice of the cross that it happened in your place. As McShane says about the uh, giving of the lamb in the tabernacle, that the worshipper must place his hand on the lamb. He, the lamb is brought, but the worshipper must place his hand on the lamb. Jesus is there and you say, what a wonderful event, what a wonderful story. I barely understand it. It's glorious. I'm so small. I don't want to get into these things. Something wonderful happened on the cross, my friend. That doesn't save you. Placing your hand on the lamb and saying, my sin, my sin must be forgiven. And he's bearing my sin in his place because he loved me and gave himself for me. You know the notion. You confess and assent to it. And you lovingly trust in it. You own it for yourself. He loved me and gave himself for me. Not glorious event in Jerusalem. That will not save you. Me. He loved me and gave himself for me. And was raised from the dead. Paul says that if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and that confess with your mouth and so on, that God raised him from the dead. It's in those apostolic formulas. Christ died for our sins and so on, and he was raised from the dead. Jesus mentions it here. No one has ascended into heaven, he says, except him who came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. He's saying, I came down, Nicodemus, and I'm doing something here, and then I'm going to ascend. That's the gospel. That's the Son. You must believe in those things. He was buried that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, Paul says. Fundamental gospel. If he is not risen, the apostle says, our faith is in vain. He was buried, he says. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures and was seen by Cephas and the twelve. That's the gospel. Don't fall into just accepting the notion. He's the son of God. He gave himself on the tree. He rose from the dead for our justification and accomplishment. Don't say, that happened, so I'm a Christian. No, it happened, and it affects me, and I'm involved, and I own it to myself and hold on to it, and I confess it to the world, and I profess it, and I lovingly trust in it. Fidelity. Fidelity, not just that you believe it occurred, but as our catechism says, we receive and rest upon him for salvation. Personal. You see it all happen. You accept it. You assent to it. And you look at the person in the midst of it, and he becomes attractive to you. You are drawn to him. His mercy draws you. His wisdom draws you. His speech draws you. His perfections draw you. And the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. And you can say like Peter, Lord, you know I love you. I love you. And I rest on you and hold to you and entrust myself to you. What is faith? I trust you. I believe it all occurred. I believe in what it means. And I trust you, Jesus. Can you say that this morning? That's me closing. Can you say that? Can you just say it's true? Can you answer questions about it? Can you say, I confess that it happened, and I'm proud that I'm of this particular element of the faith? Or can you say, Lord, you know I love you. It's a weak love. It fails miserably at times. It's imperfect. I have sin. But can you look him in the face and say, Lord, I know you did all this and I know what it means and I love you for doing it. And I love you for doing it for me and I take up my cross and follow you. I love you. I don't just worship you correctly or speak about you correctly. I do so because I love you. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes and has Notion, assent, and faith and trust. Whoever loves him because he first loved them, they will not perish. 
they will not go to hell. No one who truthfully looked him in the face and said, I love you, will go to hell. He restores that love. You are reconciled to God. May God bless these thoughts upon his word this morning. Let's stand to call upon him in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God in heaven, we bless you that you have revealed that you are a father and that you have revealed your son. No one knows the father except the son. No one knows the son except the father. And only Christ can reveal these things to us in his gospel. We bless you that these things are known and pronounced throughout the earth. We pray that in this place we would receive them in the way that Christ intends that we would believe and trust and love, that we would know God, that we would understand sin and confess it to be true and own it, that we would know Christ as thy son and his work in his death and resurrection. That message, repent and believe the gospel. What wondrous things you have done for your people. May we rejoice in them this day, on the Lord's day. We know that your people, your apostles met on the first day of the week, and they would rejoice in all that Christ had done, a day of triumph and resurrection, a day in which they could meet him. Oh God, we pray now that you would go with us in all else we do today, and that you would minister these things to our very souls. In Christ's name, amen.